0: It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg.
1: Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. You
0: know, I don't hold a hose, mate, and I don't give you the control. control. They're answers that only can come from Victoria, I'm afraid, because that's not my job.
1: But well, I ain't spending any time though, because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland.
0: Well, g'day, and welcome to the two Jacks once again. Uh, and uh, we are going all over the world, and then coming back all uh, coming back to Australia to cover things there globally and in the great Commonwealth of Australia. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack. How are you today, mate? Excellent, mate. Have you got over the uh, China's New Year celebrations or are they still going on? Well, they're still meandering on for
1: some people, but uh, um, I noticed this morning there's a lot of people, uh, I was down in the car park and there's a lot of people heading back to work.
0: So you basically had the week off last week, for, really,
1: from, for most people, yeah. yeah. I mean, the building sites uh, next door had a few people working on Thursday, uh, on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, Were not many, but it's back to buzzing in today,
0: so... So it's uh, post-COVID looking very good. Uh, How are things on the mainland? Um, I was speaking to a a German bloke who runs a
1: big business in a second-tier city in China. I spoke to him another day, and he's just here on a visit with his family, (coughs) and um, they... Not being completely trusting of the of the government's numbers, decided to keep their own stats. They employed several thousand people, many thousands of people, um, and um, as soon as the government abandoned the restrictions, ninety percent of their workforce developed COVID right. within, within the first few weeks. Um, uh, so, uh, how, how how many people became seriously ill just in
0: that small?
1: Nearly, nearly everybody had five days off work and came back
0: okay. Right, okay. Uh, and and is there something about that particular workforce? Is it very young? Perhaps in the tech sector. No. no. A bit
1: of a mix of things. Um, you know, it's a manufacturing business, but a bit of a mix of things. Um, this seems to be pretty consistent um, anecdotally around the place. I um, you know quite a few people who um, who do business in China or who work for businesses that have Hong Kong and China offices, and everybody seems to be getting it straight away. Uh, unlike Australia, where it was happening in bits and pieces, just about the whole country's had it, or getting it.
0: Are you able to tell us uh, what the workforce was, Vaccinated with were they vaccinated with Sinovac, Sinovac? It varied. It'll yeah, vary. N- n- no one's getting unless
1: you're in the um, in the in the top of the tree. You're not getting mRNA um, uh,
0: vax. You're just getting well, the, the, that, the Chinese. I voice. mean, at least that speaks to a, a, a relative efficiency of of uh, of the Chinese vaccinations. If you know symptoms are reduced to a point where after five days they're able to go back to work. Yeah, by and large, that's that's been the case. Now,
1: um, it's just possible that China might um, manage to go through uh, the two or three years we've had in with COVID in about a year.
0: Um, hard to know, but it's possible. In terms of the blow up of, of COVID yeah. once opening up occurs, yeah. And look, they have kicked it down the road for a long time, basically for for two years of very very hard lockdowns at great um, cost to their economy. Yeah, and that's just no longer can be tolerated, can no, it? No. Which, is, which is why they completely walked away from the restrictions.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. as though they never
0: happened. I will keep an eye on that as we go how Hong Kong is recovering, how the mainland is recovering as well. well. Good um, news from Hong Kong um,
1: uh, the Tuesday race meeting, the Lunar New Year race meeting at Cha Tin uh, on Tuesday. Um, Yeah. attracted a crowd of 80,000 people, uh, and it was the biggest betting turnover on a single day's racing since before the handover in 1997.
0: 80,000 at Chateen. Yep. That's probably the biggest assembly of people since COVID began, Jake, yep. in Hong and Kong. Yeah,
1: it, it was a reasonably cold and miserable day. Um, uh, they're all in their quilted jackets, et cetera. Um, uh, uh, but big crowd and big betting. And to me, that suggests that um, there's a bit of optimism in the air. The Hong Kongers love a bet, but they particularly love a bet when they're feeling a bit buoyant about the future.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit like uh, when uh, footy returned with crowds, cricket returned with crowds, big sporting events returned with crowds. There was just that great sense of optimism uh, that arose there, people getting together again. Um, Of course, uh, lockdowns, uh, for good or ill, have basically been a sort of um, contrary to what humans need. They need to be in groups, socialising and what have you. And uh, there's always a bit of joy when that happens. Yeah, Um,
1: I know this just from a few few pals who uh, uh, caught the peak tram up to the top the other day. Um, And um, uh, once again, the queues were back and people who don't know how to line up mainlanders. um, So the crowds were back on that. So the mainlanders are now back coming across the border
0: as well as tourists pretty much. Uh, Yeah, okay, yes. And the restriction's still in place, I think, 50,000 entry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're not getting (laughs) day. That's uh, per per day? day. Per day.
1: But I think they're going to pump that up to 65 tomorrow or the next day. But that's a meaningless figure because they they haven't gotten near it yet. And as soon as they get near it, they'll just push it further away. And that all relates to uh, not a RAT test, but a PCR, isn't that right? You it is. of a negative I, I, PCR. I suspect that the having to do, having to produce a negative PCR, um, is reducing the number of mainlanders coming across here because they've all got
0: COVID. Yeah. Well, we've got a whole bunch of RAT tests. Uh, I couldn't give you the exact number, but it's in the millions, Jack, in Australia, and they're about to go out of date, and no one's quite sure what to do with them. But it looks like they're going to become landfill. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, people just aren't rat testing anymore. Uh, I, I do note that when I last saw my mother in a uh, in a retirement home, uh, I was required to complete a rat uh, on entry every time. Uh, and I suspect, and, and I've just got a message from them recently saying that's not the case anymore. You're required to mask up. Um, but uh, I, I believe the rat test is uh, no longer required. I can tell uh, you
1: here the rat tests are still required for school, but just quietly. Um, a hell of a lot of people give their kids one rat test a week and then just change the background with the date on it um, uh, each day so that uh, mm-hmm. and take a photo of it. So. A
0: lot of rat tests and nowhere to really put them. Now, we told our listeners uh, last week that we'd be doing a little bit of a preview on the New South Wales state election, which is uh, – uh, well, a little bit under two months away now. Uh, there was a bit of uh, a kerfuffle, of course, uh, in the early part of this year when it transpired or when uh, the Premier <coughs> Premier Perite came forward and said, I was photographed uh, at my 21st. Well, we don't know about the photograph so much. I appeared at my 21st uh, wearing some Nazi gear Uh, And uh, he made a sort of uh, uh, basically uh, head bowed me a copper at the time. Um, Whether it's led to uh, any significant shift in what's happening or not remains to be seen. There was a little bit of polling around that time uh, that suggested that some people might change their votes on the basis of that revelation. But really, when the campaign starts in earnest, and it really has started uh, now, Um, there are going to be some not wider issues. We'll just start with the state of play. Um, The coalition has 47 seats as it stands, and this is bearing in mind the the new new electoral boundaries in New South Wales, where the coalition has 47. That's 34 libs, Nats 13. Uh, Labor has 37. Greens, Shooters and Indies three apiece, 93 seats in the lower house. Now, the pendulum, when you look at it, Jack, very even, uh, the coalition have three under 1%. That's East Hills, Upper Hunter, which is a national health seat, and Penrith, and five under five, which uh, includes Goulburn and Willoughby, uh, along with the three I just mentioned before, and Willoughby, uh, they're up against an independent rather than a Labor candidate. men's as leader uh, holds Coggera by 0.1%, which is the most... Um, Marginal seat in the state, and uh, and he'll uh, obviously have to win that if he wants to become premier. Uh, and in total, Labor has six under five percent, includes Cogra, Leppington, Heathcote, with a the redistribution. There comes uh, comes into about a two percent margin. Uh, Lismore, Coogee, and Londonderry fall into that five percent margin. Labor holds bigger by five point one percent. Uh, that it won in a by-election in 2022 uh, uh with a huge sw- a huge swing against the libs there uh, who had taken the seat in the 29 20- who had held Bega in 2019 uh, with a margin of 6.9 percent so it looks like it's really on the knife edge there there are the, the 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 number of seats labor needs to win to form a majority basically need to win uh eight uh, or sorry, need to win nine to win to, to form government in their own right uh, with Chris Mins as leader, um, ha- and, but could uh, but could win as uh, as little as three and still have minority government provided the Greens and Indies and the Shooters come on board. But uh, that's no uh, that's no uh, certainty. Of course, the Greens might pick up one or two. Uh, and if Labor pick up, let's say, five, they're still going to be a bit short of a majority. Uh, but uh, the polling, Jack, and there hasn't been much of it, it must be said. Um, there was one published in the Sunday Telegraph on the 22nd of January. The coalition uh, is well behind in both uh, first preference and two-party preferred standings. Now uh, Jack, you might just want to explain how two-party preferred works in polling and whether it's a bit of junk or not. Well, what they seek to do is to um,
1: replicate what happens in an election by allocating preferences according to the uh, how people vote. So they'll say that, you know, like uh, uh, the Greens voters go 60% Labor, so that's the figure they'll allocate. Um, yeah, based it, on
0: previous election. Pre- previous based elections. on the previous now, election um, uh, and how the uh, preference allocations work then. It,
1: it's, it's not terribly accurate. It gives you, I mean, all these polls give you an indication. They don't give you an um, an exact figure. Yeah. yeah. It, it's best to look at that uh, primary vote and then. And, and also to look at the trends in the polling rather than the actual numbers themselves. I mean, the, the polling's not bad at picking up a trend to the government or away from the government, it's just not very good at um, deciding how big that move is and, and what the overall figures are.
0: Labor leads the coalition, and with all the caveats, we can bring you fifty-six forty-four two-party preferred, and it leads uh, the coalition thirty-nine to thirty-three on first preferences, and that's probably the significant figure. That's a substantial lead. Labor, state, and federal need to win high thirties preference votes, and uh, and then get their uh, get their preference allocations. Well, the high, high thirty primary vote has to be yeah. high 30 primary, if, I, was, I, if yeah. I didn't say that. It has to yeah. be high 30 primary to put them in the game, to get them up to that 50-51. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, and uh, I would say, gee, that's a very low primary vote, just on polling, for the Liberals. And it and it sort of replicates what happened in the uh, federal election last year, um, where I think uh, the Libs got about 33-34, first preference. Um, but this is coalition, so that's... 33 minus, let's say, 5 from from uh, from the National Party. Now, there are those people who look at polls and say maybe the Nationals don't get included all that often, um, but that's a very low primary vote for the Liberals in any sort of sphere, state or federal. It is. Um, and if
1: you'd asked me uh, three months ago, um, I would have said... Uh, that Minns was a, an absolute certainty to become premier. Um, it looked to me like the the government, which they tend to do, had run out of steam, been there a bit long, uh, and it was time for a change. Um, and it had been long enough since the since the the very poor end of the last Labor government um, uh, for people to have forgotten about that um, and give them another chance. Um, but they just seem to me to have been becalmed a little since then. They did They didn't. They seem to have not kept the momentum going. You know. Um, so I get, I've got some query about where it
0: is now. Well, what I would say is that I don't think people have forgotten uh, too much about uh, Labor's disastrous um, uh, failings in state government. I, I think it's more a question of forgiveness, uh, and I think uh, and trust. Uh, and,
1: and, and means looks. A, means looks a really likely type, Doesn't it?
0: They've had a few little. Uh, a few had a few little scandals around uh, Bankstown, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you know? Um, uh, Jihad Dibbs will be the the, uh, the candidate there because his seat has actually been wiped out in a, uh, uh, <coughs> a redistribution. Um, and Jihad Dibbs is a is a very fine candidate. Has been for a while, and he'll win that seat by a very very long way. Um, but they have had a little bit of scandal with one uh, Labor uh, MP uh, now going on the One Nation ticket under, under Mark Latham for the upper house. Uh, she'd made some noises about the mayor of uh, uh, Bankstown uh, and, and uh, the mayor was, a uh, Labor mayor was uh, subsequently cleared by an independent, uh, independent inquiry. Um, uh, I, th- I really do think that that issue of trust is a big one. I would also argue that probably in, in an historical sense that, that, that Labor is the um, um, uh, normal state of, um, uh, of, uh, of leadership in New South Wales, that we go back to the Rand years and the Carr years, etc., cetera, and even before that, that, it, that, that, uh, that New South Wales tends to be a Labor state and it's reasons for being in the wilderness for so long Uh, And we're getting into uh, the second decade of them being in opposition now, are because they made an absolute um, uh, disgrace of 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 government along the way. So I think it's really a bit of a dog's breakfast. Historically, if you go right back, the reason why
1: Labor's been the more or less the natural party of government um, uh, in New South Wales is that the Labor Party didn't really split. In the fifties in New South Wales, yeah, that's one.
0: That's one very good, very good reason. And um, they remained in power in New South Wales, yeah, and, uh, and, throughout and, that period. And
1: what what that meant was that the Labor Party was a party of the centre, whereas the Labor Party in Victoria, because of the split, became a party of the left, absolutely the left. And um, and that kept them out of government a lot for a long time down there, but, but also kept Labor in New South Wales in government for a long, long time.
0: Yes. Um, look, we'll get to uh, men's recognition among the electorate in a minute, but I just wanted to uh, talk about the Liberals and whether they've learned anything from, uh, from getting a belting last last year in the federal election. And this is according to Paul Bludger, who's a cephologist a in, in Western Australia, well worth looking at. we uh, have a look at his website uh, on all sorts of polling analysis and, um, and matters cephological. Um, he said uh, the Liberal preselection for Parramatta made headlines after nominee Tanya Rafool, who is the chief of staff to Transport Minister David Elliott, who uh, is resigning from politics, claimed party members had told her she should, quote, settle down and have children, unquote, and was, quote, too assertive to be a member of parliament. Uh, While well, Linda Silmaris of the Daily Telegraph reported that Rafool faced several right-wing candidates whose faction dominated the local branches. The front runner among them would appear to be lawyer Katie, Mull- Katie Mullins. Now, <clears throat> those names won't be uh, uh, certainly not households, but uh, uh, but uh, it, it shows us that really the Liberal Party doesn't seem to have learned anything, and in its faction-riddled. State in New South Wales seems to be more mired in factionalism than uh, than uh, than it was perhaps last year. Yeah, it could be. Uh, the Essential Report uh, is a poll uh, that looked at uh, name recognition, essentially, or approval ratings for Chris Minns and Perrette. Um The don't-knows for Chris Minns are at 35%, which is down just four points uh, since October uh, 39% approve, 9% strongly, uh, meanwhile Perrottet has uh, just 16% don't knows and that sort of basically tells us um, uh, that people don't know who he is, uh, but men's at 35%, but 47% approve of the job he's doing, 16 strongly. That's so, peritone. Um, I don't think yeah. people perceive him. My reading of it is I don't think people
1: perceive him as being a particularly bad premier. I just think that the, um, the what's going to go wrong for them is that they've just been there too long.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we'll look. At, we'll keep an eye. Uh, keep an eye out. The campaign really is getting underway now. Uh, Mins will put himself about a lot more than he has been because he does need. Uh, and he's a good performer. He's a good um, performer, but he just doesn't have that. Uh, he just doesn't have that recognition factor across the state uh, yeah. that I think. Um, well, look, he, he definitely needs it. it. It may well be, as you say, that that the people find uh, find that uh, this mob have been uh, in power too long, and it's time to try something else. And in that case, voter recognition doesn't matter a lot. Um, no, no. But, um, yeah, it's well underway. I mean, look, let's, let's, let's not uh, gild the lily here. If the Libs get rolled um, in March in New South Wales, that will put an end to them being in government in any state or territory across the country, with the exception of Tasmania. So it is, that, that, that would be a serious blow for the Liberal Party Going forward, if that does happen, it, you know, I can't begin to tell you how it will impact on membership, how it will impact on fundraising if they're out in the cold for a very long time on the mainland. Yeah, so I, I actually look, think it'd be
1: a pretty good performance imperative if
0: he can pull this off and stay in government, be quite honest. Yeah, look, he, he's got certainly everything against him at the moment. Yeah. I, like yeah. you, I, I actually find him, you know, to be a decent sort of human being and, and, and I think whether, he, whether he's introducing policies that might be perceived as progressive purely because he's in the survival business now and survival mode, or, or whether he's sort of genuine uh, uh, about, uh, about some of his policies remains to be seen. Um, but uh, I, I certainly don't think he's done a bad job and he was gifted the old shit sandwich when, uh, when he took over. He was. Um, look, I just don't
1: think that people think he's terrible. Um, I just don't think that enough of them like him enough to keep him in government when the when the sort of inevitable march of history is
0: going to push them out. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of talent there on the front bench either. But then again, mm. you could say that about any pretty much any state government in Australia. Oh, what's, the,
1: what, what's, what's the old rule about state governments? that a, a good friend of ours told us who worked in them for a long time um, that you need... Um, uh, 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 three good ministers, uh, two or three good ministers, uh, and that's all you need to run a good state government. And, yeah. and, and I asked him, well, what would you do if you had four or five? And he said, um, uh, well, no one's ever tried that.
0: <laughs> yes, I think as Keating once referred to uh, state government uh, MPs generally as low-caliber low-calibre bullets. Um, and he was uh,
1: rather more pungent in the way he put that, but yes, he says, no, 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 no one's ever tried that.
0: Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it is a bit of a shame really. And, and part of it isn't broader discussion that we've, won't really get into at the moment but part of that is there's a real disincentive for people to join politics (laughs) and and it's a lot of it's media driven you know so uh you know if you get nailed for for uh for 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 your own expenses and so forth for for maybe sort of gilding the lily there and all of a sudden you're on the front page of the of the newspapers and people are talking about you. People in business and people who might uh, make a real contribution uh, elsewhere in the com- community of state politics are looking at this and go, "I don't want to be part of that." It is a pretty awful job. Yeah, indeed. Now we have a les- uh, We have a uh, a listener's letter from our good farming mate Lawrence. Uh, about lockdowns, Jack, and we just want to talk about that because we did have an expanded discussion on lockdowns. Was that last week or the week before? I can't remember. week before, I think. Yeah, I think it was. Anyway, this is the letter. I'll read it to you. I've been mulling over the discussion in the last one, yes, it was two weeks ago, (laughs) about the education system during COVID. The more I've thought about it, the more I've come to the view that uh, that should have kept the schools open, espoused by Hong Kong, Jack, is flawed. You made a good point, that's me, about the lack of data and the general flying by the seat of your pants policymaking that was happening at the time. I just think one of the biggest barriers to leaving schools open was OH&S. Yes, children were seen as and proved to be less vulnerable to the virus than adults, but the kids don't teach themselves. Would the government make it mandatory for teachers to go to work? Would they grant exemptions to the older teachers and staff? What about others with risk factors like obesity, high blood pressure, etc.? What about children that lived in the same household as elderly grandparents? If children were given exemptions, how long before the kids Uh, that didn't want to be there got permission to stay away anyway. And probably the biggest worry, he says, he writes, how long would it take for the ambulance chasing lawyers to bring a lawsuit against the Department of Education if a teacher forced to work died from a COVID infection contracted at work? That's without the fracas the teachers' union would have brought on. I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, P&C or P&F groups would have joined in, uh, joined in, given the news pieces showing overflowing Italian and US hospitals and morgues in 2020. We had a, a daughter during year 12 and another in her first year at uni in 2020. It wasn't ideal, but they muddled through with good results, even with our dodgy internet. Thank you, Malcolm Turnbull. He didn't write that. No, that was my, my little editorial. I I also have elderly parents, 88, 89, who live on the farm, both of our heart issues and are on medication. Uh, and I would have uh, had to think long and hard about our position re-going to school prior to the vaccine becoming available. Well, good points, I would have thought, Jack. Yes, I thought they are very good points. I would say this, though. Um, a lot of
1: people who did have to go to work during covid
0: yeah, uh, and and that raised all sorts of possibilities, didn't it? I mean, we still I mean, do, the we best still,
1: description of lockdown still is the laptop class sitting at home while the working class brought them
0: stuff. Well, that's your description, but 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 basically, in that first year of the pandemic, we really didn't know what we what we were dealing with. Just exactly who were the risk? Uh, whether whether children were more vectors than sufferers, all these sorts of things weren't really known. Um, and you have made the point previously that the governments had to make decisions uh, that would normally take a year in the space of a day. So you know, mistakes were obviously made. But this is one of the this is one of the issues of COVID going forward. Not that I'm suggesting that people lock down, but that there are people uh, in the community now uh, with uh, pre-existing health problems, respiratory problems, etc., that now can't really engage. Uh, because because of uh, the, the threat they suffer from COVID, uh, I, I'm not quite sure what we do there, but this is you know a potential problem going forward. Yeah, we may have
1: to have you know, special arrangements for uh, the relatively modest group of people who are genuinely at higher risk.
0: Uh, uh, I, I, but- I think you find it's a lot higher than than then, then you think that it's you know, that you might be thinking it's just sort of one percentile and so forth. I think you find people with Sorts of conditions where they're having treatment f- that that might involve uh, immune system breakdowns or immune system twiddling uh, with uh, with drug therapies and what have you. I, I think there's actually a very large number of people, people with heart conditions, people with respiratory conditions. It's actually quite substantial numbers. Uh, when we look at people with just with serious asthma, for example, that gets you up under the 10, 10 percentile just in that alone. Mm. Uh, well,
1: I think Lawrence, you make some good
0: points, but yeah, I don't think I, 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 <laughs>
1: I don't think teachers should have been any more exempt from having to go to work than supermarket workers, ambulance drivers, um, and nurses, uh, or anybody else. I don't think teachers are a special class of persons in that regard. I know the teachers' unions probably think they are, but I don't think they are.
0: Oh no, no! I don't think that's what uh, Lawrence is saying. I think Lawrence is saying that this would be a means of spreading infection into the into the wider community, uh, not just into not just into teachers in the classroom, but uh, students and others coming home with COVID, uh, while uh, while other people in their family setups were 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 trying to avoid uh, were trying to avoid infection.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, (laughs) I I still think they should have been open. The damage done by the schools being closed for for so long, I I certainly agree you can lock lock down and have closures for a short time, but not for the length of time that they were.
0: There are considerable problems, I know this, that schools are really having great trouble getting students to come back. Mm. Um, and um, and that and that is that is a major problem. And uh, that will they've mean, lost a whole generation of troubled kids. Well, I think that's 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 just an exaggeration. To be honest, I lost I lost lost generations, mate. Whenever someone of, uses of, the term of, of, of troubled kids, I think they have. Yeah, I'll ne- uh,
1: they'll never get them back.
0: Well, yeah, yes and no, but, I mean, you are looking at a potential problem there. Well, not a potential problem, but a, but a serious social problem uh, uh, arising from, from COVID. I think part of the problem, Jack, is that uh, we are in, as a society, we are in the blame game. Uh, And and that everyone, you know, when you strip this back logically, uh, it's as if people expected to live through a pandemic without any consequences or costs.
1: That's true. Um, I don't think you can design an education system around making sure that no one teacher gets COVID and dies. You just can't do that. I, I mean, don't know well, that
0: that was the case either. No,
1: no, no <clears> I don't think it was. And I'm not really interested in blaming people. What I'm interested in, what I think we should be looking at now, is to say what lessons can we learn from this pandemic for the next one. And one of the lessons absolutely. to one of the lessons to learn is don't lock schools down for so long.
0: Well, I, I would prefer much prefer uh, a data data based evidence rather than rather than opinion, before we make those decisions. But that's a- absolutely essential, I think, going forward, that we that we actually have the review, uh, whether it's a Royal Commission or th- th- there's absolutely no appetite for this in government or in the opposition at a federal level, by the way, because it means that there will be the way the media will portray a judicial review or a Royal Commission uh, into pandemic management and to the way we manage the pandemic. Uh, will 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 fall into a, a blame game sort of exercise, but we certainly do need to uh, review what happened and prepare and plan better. I go back to the I go back to the the, the Spanish uh, influenza uh, pandemic. There are a couple of things happened that are completely different. Um, that is, well, the, the the main thing is that when the Spanish flu pandemic ended in Australia, people just went. Got on with their lives, but here we've got a groups of people who who simply cannot get on with their lives. People who didn't vaccinate, people who are part of the freedom movement, and so forth. Uh, they, these people were not around in in uh, in 1922. Um, the other thing that's absolutely very similar is that we actually did do some planning for the Spanish uh, flu pandemic, or pandemics generally, uh, and um, and then when the shit hit the fan, uh, the states and feds just tore each other apart. Yeah, which is what happened thing.
1: this time, too. Almost every government had pandemic plans in place before the pandemic hit. None of them followed
0: them. Yeah, yeah. So we need, to, so, so it's okay to prepare a plan for these things. This is my point: that when, once the shit hits the, the, the pandemic, shit hits the fan, that that state governments and federal governments will start making their own plans according yeah. to the politics of the day. Yeah, indeed. All right. Speaking of pandemics, Jack Thanks, Norman Lawrence, Swan, sir. enjoyed the letter. No, good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you, Lawrence um, um, Norman Swan. Jack, uh, what's he? What to get? An AM. I think so. Yeah, and am is the equivalent of a participation award, basically. Um, Thanks for thanks for uh, thanks for everything you've done, whatever that is. Um, It's a bit like getting an elephant stamp at school, is it? Yeah, Norman Swan clearly did get a lot of things wrong, and again, we could we could uh, excuse that. I mean, one thing we must say is that he, he was and never pretended to be an epidemiologist, a virologist. Uh, I
1: actually I actually thought you might have taken him aside very early in the piece um, and giving him uh, the advice that old editor gave you when you first started writing opinion columns. Don't forget, Jack, you're not paid to be right, you're paid to be
0: certain. You're <laughs> paid to be certain. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what
1: Norman was. He was yeah, certain no, about right. everything. That's, that's
0: right. And, and, look, he's not on his own there. Oh, he, of course he's, not. He, he's probably not on his own in terms of receiving an, an Australia Day honour as, as uh, pathetically small as it is. Um, but um, um, he, he, he was an alarmist. Uh, uh, it's certainly in the it, early days of the pandemic, graphic, yes. uh, and, and I'm not sure that um, uh, that uh, he, he, done, he did himself any great particular credit uh, <clears throat> while uh, in that in that in that first year, that dark that dark time. Um, and he also made some very serious mistakes about uh, linking uh, celebrity deaths, including uh, the death of uh, the great S.K. Warren. Uh, to uh, to uh, yeah, the, Victorian, the Victorian senator Kimberly Kitching, as well. Yeah, that's right, and and was obliged to apologise for that. I mean, I, I I really don't know what we what we see with the anti vaccination groups, Jack, and the you know the mad sort of stuff they get on with is that anyone who drops off the branch, they'll immediately link that to the vaccine. And so, Whether they've had the uh, vaccine or not, you uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, That's right. Yeah, they don't know the medical history, but doesn't stop them. But but how is Norman Swan any different from them oh, in terms not, of Mo? But, but not many of them have got an AM, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, my very good friend Warren Brown received one, Jack. Yeah, and I was um, uh, I had something to do with uh, the um, uh, with the uh, compilation of that application, but. Um, uh, I, I would just say this about
1: the public health experts. Warren Brown
0: deserved this, but anyway, go on. Well, we'll and Warren Brown, an
1: excellent recipient. But what I would say this about the public health, ex, public health officials in Australia, that they've done a fair bit of damage to people's trust in public health officials by being quite so alarmist. Um, you know, the woman in South Australia who was... Uh, cautioning people against against catching a foot don't catch the football don't catch, the football. Don't catch <laughs> the football it's dripping with COVID yeah yeah um, uh, this sort of stuff actually does damage people's trust in public health officials and oh, I think yeah. they did a fair bit of damage the trouble with experts is that they can be really expert in what the bit of the bit of the science that they know but the more expert they are I think the suggestion is that they have are particularly bad at knowing what they don't know.
0: Well, it also, you know, the media has got a role to has got a role to play in this too, Jack. So, so if one of these public health experts had have come forward and and urged calm and urged yep. you know, some um, some positive steps, <laughs> I reckon they would have been pretty much blankly annoyed uh, or ignored, I should say. Be, be, because, the, because there's no clicks in that. Yeah, no, no. So so basically this is the scaretainment stuff that Malcolm Turnbull refers to, and I think quite well, uh, the scaretainment stuff of the, 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 the media role. Um and pe- people who had lived, led useful but
1: blameless lives um, uh, as public health officials, all of a sudden are media
0: stars, and that can be a very beguiling. Yeah, that can be a bit of a problem, too. I do I do remember with amusement, those very early days of the pandemic, we're talking about February, March 2020, when people were told to wash their hands. And uh, there were a number of people in the community, <laughs> how do I do that? Um, but most of us knew how to wash our hands, Jack. Mm. Um, and uh, we had to have all sorts of silly things like uh, hum the tune of Happy Birthday to You while you wash your hands because that'll be just long enough mm. and all this sort of stuff. There, Look, we should have seen some of the signs around the public health industry. I call it an industry. With some of the mad stuff that they were talking about in uh, in uh, in terms of smoking and, and, and national bans and this sort of stuff. Um, there is... Uh, uh, they, have,
1: they have an addiction problem themselves. They're addicted to telling people what to do. Yeah,
0: yeah. And and they, you know, they, they, I just don't understand what the end game is. I mean, do, do we all really want to live till we're 105? Mm, uh, mm. I don't. Mm. Um, no, and, and similarly, not all of us are going to get knocked over by the number 28 bus, you know. Mm. Anyway, uh, and we we're allowed to have a little bit of fun along the way. Meanwhile, well, don't,
1: Jack... Don't tell anybody that.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack, oh, Jim Chalmers is remaking and remodelling capitalism.
1: And I've got to
0: tell you, it's about time.
1: Yeah. Uh, I noticed he did this in 6,000 words. Um, uh, there's a great P.J. Rourke line um, uh, that he said about The Economist. You know, that the, the, the magazine from the UK? Very,
0: very high. Uh, read it, read it all juice. around the
1: world. Yeah, very serious magazine. Uh, he said that, the economist view of writing is to say, why say something in a thousand words when 10,000 words will do <laughs> just as well?
0: Well, you, you may not be aware of this, Jack, but as a professional scribbler, for, particularly in magazines, you get paid by the word, mate. Uh, yeah, but the other thing is. But like the exactly. editor, in a good magazine, yeah. an editor will turn around and say, well, you've got two and a half. Well, um, it's also a lot more work to write it. Something to write a story in a thousand words than it is
1: to write it in ten thousand words, yeah. um, and the, and the Economist is the, just about the dullest and most boring magazine in the world because uh, it's so indulgent about uh, about article length. But Jim Chalmers penned a six thousand word piece about how he's going to remake capitalism, um, and I was. I, I I didn't I haven't read the six thousand words. Thank you very oh, much. Oh wow!
0: So we kind take you very seriously then, Jack. Uh,
1: but uh, I just thought, in every federal Labor government, there's someone who carries the torch for Rex Connor. It looks like it's going to be Jim Chalmers.
0: Yeah. Look, he said that Labor will ditch the free market policy consensus that has steered rich countries over over two generations in fashion a values-based economy in partnership with business unions and community groups. Now, I like the last part of that. That's about conciliation. That's about communication. And that's about uh, getting uh, uh, stakeholders in the same room and coming up with agreements. So I I don't have a problem with that. The the fundamental issue around capitalism, Jack, and this is a huge problem around the world. Now, we all understand the benefit of markets, generally speaking drag people out of poverty, uh, provide a quid for those who aren't in it, but at the other end of the scale you've got people uh, wealthier now than ever before where you've got your top 1%, your top 5% who basically own just about everything. And that's part of the problem. That's part of the perception of Australians and people around the world that they're being left out. Hmm. Um, what Jim Chalmers
1: is proposing is, I don't want people making their choices about this. I want a group of people who I can corral in a room making choices about this. And this generally works badly.
0: Well, how did, how did, uh, how did uh, Keating and Hawke come up with, uh, with agreement between the unions and themselves on wage increases? I mean, you've got to involve stakeholders.
1: They did on one aspect of the economy and then let the economy get on with itself.
0: Oh, well, all right. Well, we'll see just how many. I mean, I think Jim Chalmers, and he probably had someone write substantially most of that himself, that op-ed that, uh, <coughs> that appeared last week. Uh, uh, we really do have a sense that, too, post-pandemic, and with some of the economic uh, issues that are arising, particularly around high inflation, we do have a. There is a sense that uh, you can start, start remaking things, remodelling things a little bit. Again, anyone who has a crack at reform uh, is not uh, is not going to be. Uh, is, you know, I'm going to feel fairly comfortably towards. I mean, I, you know, there are lots of things that need to be reformed in, in our country, but just leaving markets, just unfettered capitalism, maybe not one of them. I mean, in the end, it will destroy itself um, because you just simply cannot have um, the 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 uh, the huge uh, divergence in, in equity that we've got more and more in 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 in, in uh, the global market system.
1: Yeah, well, I've got Jim Chalmers in the Rex Connor in the Rex Connor column at the moment.
0: Well, he's he's, he's doing as he's told. I mean, uh, elbow has got him uh, got him on the leash, uh, but that was the difference. Uh, that might be the difference there because Rex was uh, Rex was uh, acting alone um, off the reservation, in the middle of the night waiting for the telex machine to work to, to tick tick for him. Bring your ticking, Jack. Uh, the Doomsday Clock has now got us at nine. I think it's nine seconds to midnight.
1: Yes. Yeah, I saw this uh, other day. Um, it looks so lame these days. They've got, they've got the big cloth over this uh, uh, this clock, uh, clock and they pull it down and we're all supposed to go, oh and run for the corner.
0: Well, five minutes to midnight apparently is a good thing. Nine seconds, obviously not. And this is a combination of war in Ukraine, a threat of nuclear weapons being used, climate change, etc. that there is more than one... Uh, more than one apocalypse potentially looming. I, I have to wonder, was the, uh, was the doomsday clock running during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Because it must have been about one or two seconds to midnight yeah, on that. Yeah, um, uh, it must have been. The best comment I saw on it was
1: a doomsday clock that has been going for about 75 years seems to be a little unclear on the
0: concept. Yeah, Um, look, I can only say, on my reading of it, we have never got closer to uh, to, in this case, a nuclear apocalypse than we did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, fingers were hovering over buttons. We are nowhere nowhere near that at the present moment, and and it got uh, very close, very, very close there. And I think really a lot of a lot of the uh, credit for uh, for avoiding that kind of conflagration sits with Khrushchev. On my reading of it, um, but the Kennedys were very good too. Jack, you, you you maligned the Kennedys for the last thirty years, haven't you? But uh, you know, <laughs> when you go for a walk, you can uh, without uh, without uh, the uh, the ground you walk on uh, becoming uh, well, uh, actually radioactive and smouldering. Mm-hmm. So they, they, you know, that, that was excellent work really from those two leaders, JFK and. Uh, and uh, Nikita Khrushchev.
1: I don't make fun of the Kennedys so much as make fun of the way they're deified around the world.
0: Well, that's that's like, that's like the Elvis effect, mate. They're, mm. they're, they're dead. They're, yes, he was a good-looking bloke. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> they're dead. <What laughs> and what, what, what and taken from us so sharply that they're always going to be um, deified. Uh, what was the phrase? I think it was uh, Teddy who said... Uh, and he said uh, his uh, brother John should not be enlarged in life, What he well, enlarged in death, what he was in life. I think that was, he's talking, he's talking about Bobby,
1: actually, at that the was, time. But, Yeah, sorry, but, um, that was Bobby. Um, their, yeah. their distant relative, uh, Gore Vidal, um, had an interesting take on the uh, JFK presidency. He said, any presidency that started with the Bay of Pigs and ended with Vietnam can't be considered
0: an unalloyed success. <laughs> It was, there was that bit about Vietnam that they got horribly, horribly wrong. Now, uh, in and, the the States, ba- and the Bay of Pigs. Oh, the Bay of Pigs was an <laughs> unmitigated disaster and and a uh, propaganda coup for uh, Fidel Castro. Um, uh, Jack, let's start off with the United States. Um, uh, the 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 beating death of Ty Nichols, the twenty nine year old black man in Memphis, Tennessee. Jack, uh, um, set upon by five police officers, all black Americans. Uh, have you seen the video? Uh, yes, unfortunately, yeah. It's uh, not good watching, is it? Uh, the squad that they were members of uh, that were basically targeting high-crime areas have never been, has now been disbanded and uh, the five officers themselves have all been charged with second-degree homicide I just wanted to point out to our listeners what that means. First degree homicide, Jack, you'd be able to clarify this for me. First degree homicide, generally speaking in the States, is um, uh, basically a planned premeditated murder. What Um, we would call murder in Australia. Second degree homicide sits somewhere between manslaughter and murder. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and I'll just uh, just read out, because I think that this is of interest, um, what second-degree homicide, um, the, the second-degree homicide law is in Tennessee, and it states, in a prosecution for a violation of this section, if the defendant knowingly engages in multiple incidents of domestic abuse, assault, or the infliction of bodily injury against a single victim, the trier of fact may infer that the defendant was aware that the cumulative effect of the conduct was reasonably certain to result in the death of the victim, regardless of whether any single incident would have resulted in the death. They've also, it must be said, uh, been charged, uh, all five officers have been charged with aggravated assault, acting in concert, aggravated kidnapping, and official misconduct and official oppression. I'd say they're in a fair bit of strife, Jack. Um, I wouldn't be booking a holiday anywhere. And there's some really odd things, Jack, because the peace, there were protests, but they've all been peaceful. Um, Tucker Carlson was yelling out he produced some flyer that he'd found somewhere, which is... Pretty much obvious fake from what uh, from what I saw looking at that that uh, antifa would be out there antifing very soon, but uh, none of that's happened and the protests have been peaceful. I'd suggest that mm, might not quite. There's been a, a
1: fair bit of looting and burning of police cars going on, but that's you know, but it hasn't been too bad. That's true. Well that
0: must be news to me. Might I suggest and perhaps. Um, um, uh, with no uh, no particular uh, facts behind me that uh, that the uh, skin colour of the uh, uh, alleged offending police officers might have had something to do with the response had they been five white men I think it might have been a little bit different I think that would be right All right Trump and st- sticking with the states Donald Trump has uh, he's uh, he's launched his campaign in New Hampshire and uh, South Carolina Jack. He
1: has. He's on the, on the, on the, the big plane going around um, um, uh, doing uh, rallies again. Um, one thing that amused me was he was talking to a reporter on the plane and he weighed in on George Santos.
0: Um, oh, and, nice. Uh, yes, the great fabulist from Long Island.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Trump said, I think it's a terrible situation. It's very unfortunate.
0: He's told some whoppers. <laughs> One takes one to no one. Um, yeah, but, well it but, did amuse me. Oh, but look, look, let's be fair. George Santos is in a lane on his own <laughs> in terms of in terms of lies. Um, but uh, so and he is going to New Hampshire and he is going to South Carolina because they are two of the early states of primaries. We are, yeah. it must be said, I think some 10... Months away, might be eleven or ten and a half anyway uh, before uh, before primaries kick off, um, and it would seem that he just doesn't have that support that he had in twenty sixteen, Jack.
1: Well, um, the, the, the journalists have been out there in New Hampshire uh, talking to Republican Party officials up there, and they're not finding a lot of love for the Donald. Oh dear,
0: oh dear. He did look, he did look, you know, like he was he was spruced up. He'd had a shave. He'd put the tan on. He probably spent two or three hours in hair and makeup, and uh, he did look comfortable again on the hustings. Oh, I mean- he's, he, he's good at these rallies. The, the the journalists talked to ten
1: New Hampshire Republican Party officials, uh, and they could find only three who were sticking with Trump this time around. These are all people who were uh, important in the campaign the last two times. Mm. Um, and one of them, uh, a chap called Brian Sullivan, uh, said Donald Trump right now is a distraction for the Republican Party in trying in trying to go forward. Donald Trump has run his course.
0: I would rather see someone else like Ron DeSantis in the race. Ouch, Jack. Ouch. So that's one of the uh, small county Republican committee members, uh, and these are the people you need to win over. Yeah, these are the people you need to run your campaign for you. Mm, indeed. So uh, not looking all that good for the Trumpster still. He's getting around in a in a, in a plane again and he loves and, that. And, and he is very good at doing the
1: rallies. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, look, uh, you know, he's a showman.
0: I mean, mm, uh, yep. that, that's a, that's he, he, he's stuff. He's a carnival he's huckster, let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. I've uh, <laughs> been babbling a lot about transgender issues and all this kind of stuff. I mean, as if it... Uh, as if that's sort of 1% of Americans are causing that much trouble. Um, and and always, you know, this is the other thing. And it, it, it does get into that fear-tainment sort of business, that he's always in the business of creating fear. Things are just going so horribly now that only he can come and fix them. And uh, he's had a crack and he really did not do that much about it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jack, in, in beautiful California, beautiful progressive left-wing uh, California, Um, The uh, very fine um, uh, tech journalist and writer Antonio Garcia Martinez, who writes for the New York Times and other organizations, has described California as feudalism with better marketing. I did like that. I thought, That's it's a beauty, beauty. isn't it? It's, it's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Not?
1: Um, uh, and, and it's kind of true. Uh, there's an argument to be made to split California as a state because there's sort of two Californias. There's the coastal California, which is hideously expensive um, uh, and very successful, Hideous, hideously expensive to live in and very successful. And then there's the inland California, the Central Valley, etc., which is uh, poor um, uh, and speaking, yeah. and um, uh, and largely Latina, um, uh, and and is not going so well.
0: Well, uh, the, uh, even even in the biggest of its cities, L.A., you know, driving around there, you you drive into very very uh, expensive upper middle class areas, and then you you drive, you you drive a couple more blocks, and you're in poverty like. Third World levels, so yeah. even in and this is the case in most cities. You find this in San Francisco, even, even
1: worse in Silicon Valley because there are no areas for the poor people to live in. Yeah. So that so that they they have to bus all the people in to do the fetching and carrying for them.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, in LA too, there's the you know there is there is a suburb called Skid Row. And it just sits. It just sits round the corner from downtown LA, from the CBD. And you, you, you wander in there, and there's poverty like you've never seen before. And that's because essentially, what happens if people have come into contact with law enforcement, or indeed the health system, uh, they've been discharged from hospital and so forth, the, the ambulances just dumping them there. And that's mm. it. If you've got no place to go to, that's where you go. Mm. Um, yeah, so there is this incredible amount of uh, inequality, Jack, and it's what we were talking about before. Um, the Capitalism isn't working for a lot of people. Well, Capitalism California style is a
1: bit more like what Jim Chalmers is proposing. It's all done at the top. It's all done by sitting, sitting a few stakeholders around the table and coming to a decision. That's how it works there, and this is the result. Well, what do
0: you mean by that? I mean, are we talking about corporate America or government?
1: What are we talking about? They're all—they're all in it together. Corporate America, um, uh, the, the Democratic Party, which is a—it's a, a one-party state, California, um, and the and the union movement, uh, and all the stakeholders—they're around the table, and this is
0: what they've come up with. It's yes, all right. Um, uh, yes, it, uh, I'll just go on to uh, to quote uh, Martinez here. that California's embrace of green ideology has been particularly destructive to the economy. Technology companies have been key backers of California's unproven and costly climate-centred policies. The other thing, Jack, is that a great many um, uh, corporate uh, corporate entities have left, um, they've been offered uh, incentives, taxation uh, incentives particularly, to go and establish themselves in other states, particularly Texas. Yeah, um, and, and, and also across the other side of the country as well, and, uh, the Carolinas, Florida, etc. It's actually changing demographics <coughs> in, in Texas. It is. Uh, uh, <coughs> um, very much so, and, and it, may well, it may well mean that uh, Texas becomes a blue state uh, for the first time since LBJ. Um, on the basis of it. Um, yeah, so uh, California, uh, one of those measures, I think, that we find of a, of a, a good society or otherwise is um, uh, the amount of harmless people you find on the streets, Jack. And, um, it's, it's worse in California than anywhere. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely lamentable in San Francisco. I just mentioned Skid Row in L.A. Um, and, uh, it, it is absolutely lamentable. And it is, it is genuinely third, third world staff. In fact, I, I compared, I, 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 visited the States a while back, uh, and I uh, visited India, uh, a few years before that. And, uh, there wasn't a lot of difference between Mumbai and Bombay, uh, and, uh, and, uh, downtown San Francisco.
1: A fair bit of the genesis of this, though, goes back about 25 years ago. Um, and this is the homeless problem, not just in the United States, but, a, but around a fair bit of the Western world. When we decided, and perhaps rightly so, that institutions that, that housed people with mental health problems were not fit for purpose, what we did was we said, let's close those and put the people back in the community, but we never, ever put Um, the proper resources around them to make that work. And the homeless problem in most parts of the Western world is
0: largely a mental health problem. Look, I I concede that that's the case, but I would also say that the global financial crisis, an absolute and manifest failing of capitalism, uh, uh, meant that 9 million American homeowners lost their homes. Uh, now that was really just what two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, uh, and I would suggest that not a lot of people have recovered. Um, many have, but a, a lot of people remain homeless from that great cataclysm.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that's got much to do with the homelessness in San Francisco and L.A.
0: Well, you're going to see people gravitate. You're going to see. You're going to see a lot of homelessness in Las Vegas as well, which seems to be another. Uh, sort of centre for these sorts of things and, and and at the heart of every homeless individual there will be a catastrophe, That the, the, a catastrophe whether it was a mental health catastrophe or whether it was a financial catastrophe, i.e. the loss of one's home or a family breakdown. Uh, these things create homelessness as we know and some people simply don't recover from them.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I think all of the, the, the stats that I've
1: seen indicate that mental health's the biggest single driver mental health and drug abuse is the biggest single drivers
0: of this. All right. Well 9 million, 9 million people losing their homes gonna have some impact, Jack. <laughs> um, electric vehicles, Jack, you've uh, come at this with a smile. the Guardian has said this that electric vehicles are evil. Well, not evil, but just uh, going to cause all sorts of mining outrages, environmental I was just amused
1: that the the Guardian had turned against your position on electric vehicles. I I thought that was quite... uh, Well, let me me quote from that awful, awful article.
0: The, The US's transition to electric vehicles could require three times as much lithium as is currently produced for the entire global market, causing needless water shortages. What? Indigenous land grabs and ecosystem destruction inside and outside its borders, new research finds. Jack, remember what I was just talking about, Scaretainment. Yeah. (laughs) It warns that... And I go on. It warns that unless the US's dependence on cars in towns and cities falls drastically, the transition to lithium battery-powered electric vehicles by 2050 will deepen global environmental and social inequalities linked to mining and may even jeopardise the 1.5 degree Celsius global heating target but ambitious policies uh, investing in mass transit walkable towns and cities and robust battery recycling in the u.s would slash the amount of extra lithium required in 2050 by more than 90 percent there's a relief there uh, that's mm. uh, so i just i just popped in there um uh, where lithium is available from jack and you know where it comes from well south america i think isn't well, they have lithium of a different time. It's basically water-based. Um, and uh, Chile has the greatest um, uh, knowable uh, reserves of lithium with 8 million tonnes. Um, uh, Argentina, 2 million tonnes. China has a million tonnes of lithium available. It's knowable. Uh, within Europe, Portugal has smaller quantities of the valuable raw material. But with... 51,000 tonnes, Australia was by far the most important supplier of, of lithium in 2018, ahead of Chile, China, etc. Uh, <clears throat> so I would think uh, not only are electric vehicles good for the, uh, the, the climate and um, uh, reducing pollution, but they're also very good for Australia, Jack. Oh, they're excellent. Yeah.
1: <laughs> They'll make the world a better place. That's right. Well, I see. Okay. I see your pal, uh, Elon Musk is equally shitty with the Guardian because he, he sells oh, electric
0: vehicles. I, I did see something. Did see someone who just on my on my Instagram. He just bought himself a, a top end uh, Tesla, and he was going through it. And um, well, let me just tell you, I mean, there was not a lot of ru- not a lot of weather sealing, not a lot of rubber stripping. Mm. I think uh, I think uh, the people who work for Elon might need to sleep more and perhaps work a little bit less.
1: Uh, I think the. the, the, the I've spoken to a few people who've driven them, and I think that it's
0: fair to say the build quality is a, a bit patchy. Yes, can be uh, one or two, one or two problems arise from that. Along uh, alongside what was the Ford, the Ford Pinto, the one that had exploded on uh, <laughs> the little fender men at the rear just catch fire. Should be laughing. It was the subject of Ralph Nader's massive class action suit. Um, and really caused a lot of problems at Ford Motor Company. Meanwhile, Jack, modular nuclear reactors, we told listeners we're going to have a bit of a, sh- going to have a, bit of a chat about mod- modular nuclear reactors. And, it, and it's arisen because the American uh, nuclear regulator has approved um, small modular re- re- uh, reactors to be constructed in the United States. Um, and, and, and my personal view before we go on with this is that we, we certainly should be looking at these technologies, that we shouldn't be dismissing them on the basis of uh, perhaps um, um, ingrained prejudices. But um, let's just start with some basic facts. Nuclear share of the world's electricity Do You think production?
1: we can safely, safely ignore Helen Caldercot on this issue, can we?
0: Um, she's a little bit nutty, but I'm not sure which way on this. She's, <laughs> oh, well, no, that's right. Yeah, she's, she's just completely non-nuclear. Now, nuclear share of the world's electricity production fell from 17.5% in 1996. 24 years later, it's 10.1% of all global electricity production. And we also need to know what happens when it goes horribly wrong. And the Fukushima collapse has led to an estimated $1 trillion U.S. dollar loss to the Japanese economy, and that's the most recent problem they've had. Tsunami and earthquake-driven large tracts of land now unfarmable; people having to be moved around. Uh, But do smaller, modular reactors give governments and business a a chance to look twice? Um, What we're talking about when we talk about modular, Jack, is that uh, they are constructed elsewhere and put and, and assembled assembled at site. So we don't have these massive costs in terms of building uh, a large-scale nuclear reactor on site. And we've talked about the one in the UK, which is due to come online, oh, any minute now, uh, the one in Somerset. Um, uh, and, and it's been almost 20 years in construction. And it's, you know, due to come online in 2024 but, you know, you wouldn't want to hold your breath. And the cost of it is extraordinary. So these large-scale nuclear reactors are just not where people are very interested in going. There is one being built in Georgia at the moment, and, again, huge cost overruns uh, that are being felt uh, contractually are being felt by Georgian taxpayers. But these small, small, when we talk about small, uh, we're talking about 300 megawatts, and that could power uh, an estimated 50,000 homes, just by way of indication. Or More a good size, them, or a good size mine, for instance. They're not suggested to be. Uh, they're not suggested to be very, very good in remote areas, um, and and I'm not entirely sure why that is. But um, um, uh, one of the one of the shortcomings about them is that they should be used essentially in urban areas rather than in remote areas and i'm not quite sure and i'm not suggesting that's due to you know meltdowns or anything like that um they're just not terribly good at that 300 megawatts jack that's your average by the way just to give you an indication that's your average sort of uh, wind farm which is about 240 megawatts um, um and so, yeah. So we describe them as small. Um, uh, they exist only in China and Russia at the moment. Um, and so, the, the data that comes out of there, you'd you perhaps not greet with a great deal of
1: confidence. Um, uh, unlike a unlike a, a wind farm, of course, this will run
0: twenty four seven. Yeah, but you've got battery jack. You know, I mean, the, the Americans. Mm. Sorry, the Americans. The Victorians have just installed a battery which is basically 300 megawatts of storage. Mm. So, How long does does that last for? uh, Well, uh, uh, provided you've got generation, it it doesn't stop. I mean, I've I've read some of these things that sort of we're getting in the scare-tainment business that that, that a battery can't last more than about nine hours. And that, you know, if you've ever put one into a torch, well... (laughs) And, and put the torch on. We'll tell you that how much how much rubbish that is. I mean, it depends what's going in. It depends what's being used, but the storage itself can re- can retain for days, if not weeks, depending on batteries. So so basically, the big techno- technological advances are in battery storage and re- and retention. That's they, they get, where they just not not yet, though. That's the trouble. Yeah. Look, um, Rolls Royce, Jack, make. Um, Make uh, in fact, they've got a they've got a website designed to um, to uh, to uh, get the partners in, get governments and other companies in. They they are in the business of manufacturing small modular reactors. Um, they only have artist's impressions on their websites because I don't think they've actually made one. So the issue comes down to again, we should not be you know we should not be sort of uh, making decisions based on. Irrational fears and so forth. the The issue will always come down to cost um, and reliability. <coughs> and And so, if we've got reliability, that there, there are issues around small modular reactors as well. That, that go for the big ones. They need a lot of water, so they need to be placed where there is a lot of water to cool them down. Uh, and where the, and where the water runs dry, or where the, the water, uh, you know, where, where we have droughts in river systems and um, uh, put, perhaps putting them by the ocean might work, but you can't do that too much in Eastern Australia. Um, then you've got issues of reliability. You know, you've got you've got issues of re- providing reliable—never mind cost—for a moment. But but then you've got the issue of reliability, and that's when um, you, re- that's when nuclear reactors basically re- come in reliable fossil fuel free power but it's not stick one on north Head it's not if we reliable if that. you haven't got the cooling system if you well, haven't got the we, cooling system you've got, to, you've got to you've got to you've got to slow or stop production we saw this in Europe uh, in, in in our winter uh, when they had blazing uh, heat waves and so forth that many of the French reactors either had to slow production or shut production altogether um, uh, because because the the water, that they used to cool it in their river systems was at too high temperature. Yeah, I'd say
1: two things about this. Um, I- anyone who's serious about um, uh, getting rid of fossil fuels needs to have nuclear in the mix. Otherwise, I don't think you're a serious person at all. Um, and the second thing is... Um, we're, well, going to have, have, we're, we're, we're going to be using fossil fuels for the next 50 years. So all this idea that coals a stranded asset and we shouldn't be drilling for gas and oil is complete nonsense.
0: Well we're basically you know in our own country we, we've got to, we've got to hit net zero by 2050. Uh, and, and, and in order to do so we're going to have to look at an energy mix um, and, and, and some of that's going to come from renewables. Some of it may well come from fossil fuels and gas and coal. Um, but um, but that's when when we get to nuclear, yes, it's absolutely um, um, well. Uh, the, the, the the engineers tell me that it's not quite zero emitting. It is it is emitting, but at very low levels. Let's acknowledge that. But then we've got to get to those other two, and they are really crucially crucially important. Is it cheap? Is it is it reliable? if you well, if you think we're doing this to
1: save the planet, the cost's worth paying.
0: Yeah, I understand that, but why would you why would you set into your grid um, unreliable and expensive electricity? Uh, you know, basically that if if well, you are starting from if, if you it's starting a, it's, from scratch in it's reliable. In any country, it's reliable. It, it wasn't reliable in the in the northern summer, Jack. It just wasn't. It just wasn't in, in, in France. They had to reduce production. They had to, they had to call upon their fossil fuels and their renewables because they, while they've got seventy percent of their electricity generation coming from nuclear, and they do have a policy to reduce it to fifty, by the way, those I think some, some eleven or twelve of their reactors had to either reduce uh, reduce production or stop it altogether. And, that, and France
1: got France got through the summer with less disruption than any other country uh, on the continent.
0: That's because they had backups, Jack. it's
1: also because they are a nuclear powered country. But they're
0: reducing their emphasis to seventy to fifty. That's government policy. So, yeah. so they're reducing the, the, the nuclear problems. What I'm saying to you is, the northern summer uh in europe with heat waves etc rivers heating um these are commonplace in australia these events are commonplace drought heat
1: waves etc there's a nice bit of commonwealth land on north head we could put one in right there
0: yeah well you're going to take it up with the residents you're you going to take <laughs> it up with people who
1: live nearby if, if we're saving the planet jack it's a cost worth paying
0: well, yeah, I know. I mean, and I mean, you, you've already said you're a skeptic, whatever that fucking means about climate change or an agnostic. I mean, which is even vaguer. Um, but basically when you are creating power, when you are in the business of creating energy policy, you want something that is reliable and yeah. cheap and low emitting. Those three things. Now it ticks only one of those boxes. Now the modular stuff I've yet to be because we are dealing essentially with artist impressions. Yeah, uh, that we are yet to see just cost of construction. Now they say they're modular, so reducing the cost of construction is a big, big exercise. It's it's perhaps worth reminding people that small modular reactors were a thing of the fifties and sixties, right? um, But they were they, they were knocked on knocked on the head because they were not delivering enough energy. So so now their time has come, perhaps. I mean, I'm not saying no to this by on, on principle, but if it doesn't tick a reliable and cheap box in terms of electricity generation, there's no point having it.
1: Yeah, well, China's building nuclear reactors because they have no emotion in this. They're just trying to, to provide power for their people, um, reliable power at a reasonable cost. And, and that's they're, low emitting. And, and, and they're prepared to do it. So, you know... There's too much emotion in energy policy in the, in in the West. In my but it's view. low
0: emitting. That's you you yeah. you, you neglected that thing. That you, you could basically say that uh, that that they're that they prepared to commit all sorts of environmental atro- atrocities, but they are essentially essentially running it because it is low emitting. They're doing they're doing a mix
1: of a mix of technologies, if you like. They're building plenty of coal fired power stations. Um,
0: they're using gas where
1: they can. Um, and they're building nuclear as well, and that's, that's because uh, they've
0: that, got. Uh, th- that's because they've got uh, you know real environmental lifestyle problems within within um, uh, within industrialised China. Yeah, I mean,
1: and, but their lifestyle. They're not worried about um, uh, emissions because of, of climate change. I don't think what they're worried about is emissions killing people today. Yes, Because exactly of the high, right. pol- the high pollution problems,
0: and. Uh, Killing people. Anyway, t- 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 time
1: Jamie Jamie Diamond, who's the, the bedwetter's bedwetter amongst um, investment bankers around the world, he's head of JP Morgan. Um, he was on the stage at, at the WEF forum in Davos the other day saying, We've got to be realistic about this. Fossil fuels will be part of the mix for the next fifty years at least. Yes, yeah, And that. We, and we and we have and we have to invest in them.
0: All right, Uh, yes, look, we did want to just very briefly touch on um, the issue uh, that might cause a bit of a stumbling block um, for the uh, membership of NATO uh, as Sweden and Finland (coughs) are willing to join, but the Turks are jacking up on uh, some issues relating to uh, terrorism, Jack. Uh, through the, the, the Kurdish Workers
1: Party, people who are in Finland and, um, uh, and Sweden—not not so much Finland, but in Sweden—and the and the uh, Turkey, uh, the Turkish president doesn't think that the Swedes are doing enough to counter this, and he's going to he's going to veto um, their entry
0: into NATO. There's another thing swinging there, Jack, <clears throat> and that is that. Um... Uh, congress has just been informed of a notification that uh, the, the $20 billion sale of F16s us fighter jets to uh, turkey was in the works but it and, seems and the, su- the suggestion is
1: that uh, uh the turkish president's opposition to sweden joining uh, might diminish pretty quickly if he got what he wanted on the, on on the jets
0: also, indeed, uh, there is an election in <clears throat> in Turkey this year, Jack, and Erdogan's uh, approval ratings are not all that flash. No, um, hard that, to know yes, how that's going to go. Yes, that's uh, one for us to look at over the year. Now, Jack, um, Canada and your favourite uh, your favourite Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. I, I, I'll just lead. i let you read this, Jack, because I, I just I'm a little bit alarmed about this report.
1: Ah, yes, Justin Trudeau's government, I don't think that's not quite true, I think it's a state government, but anyway, has introduced some of the strictest guidelines on alcohol consumption in the West uh, just weeks before Canada will decriminalise heroin and crack cocaine in parts of the country. The government is recommending Canadians have no more than two drinks per week. Uh, The new advice is a steep drop from previous recommendations of a maximum of 10 drinks per week a week for women and 15 drinks for men. Mm. I, can t- I can tell you in Hong Kong when I first came up here, um, I had to go and get a medical for insurance purposes. Uh, and, and the doctor says, to me, well, we recommend um, uh, no more than six drinks per week and three a day. And, <laughs> um, uh, and I was reminded of a story that your father used to tell uh, many years ago, and he was a great storyteller. So I'm not sure that it, this actually was him, but he always says it was, about going to see the doctor because he was um, feeling a bit dodgy. And the doctor says, um, uh, do you drink? He says, well, yes, I do. And uh, and uh, and the doctor said, would you drink a bottle of beer a day? I, I suspect he was referring to the King Browns, not a stubby. Yeah, big uh, beer. Back, yeah, yeah. back, back in those days. Uh, and, and your father, uh, Jack, always said, I, I told him, Listen, Doc, on a good day, I'd spill that much before lunch.
0: <laughs> Look, the, the standard sort of thing, I mean, we, we get these stories in the media that red wine is better for you than white and all this sort of stuff and two drinks a day seems to be a, a reasonable sort of measure. Uh, <clears throat> but the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and uh, Substance Use and addictions as a CCSA has said no amount of alcohol is safe and they've put this down to this two to a week it must be said this report this comes from the uk telegraph as i as i see it jack uh, which is not always uh, not always all that flash and they get into a bit of fear attainment themselves but uh, the, the Canadian center of substance use and addictions um, is linked it's a Quango it's it's linked to the Canadian Department of Health in that respect so that report came out but it really has no um, effect on uh, on on policy uh, be it uh, Canadian or state so the Canadian Center <coughs> have issued you know in that public health sort of environment that we just talked about before, this this shaking of uh, the index finger at the public, uh, and they've got involved in that. Where The Telegraph has gone completely ape over this is to basically liken it to um, uh, Justin Trudeau's um, um, uh, basically, decriminalising meth, opioids, and crack, and just this is a really good exercise in in just showing how media can manipulate information. It's the British, it's the province of British Columbia that is actually decriminalising. <clears throat> What we might call Class A or serious drugs, uh, Canada has uh, has decriminalised or has basically legalised marijuana use for a number of years now, um, <clears throat> but it's the British Columbians that that that, uh, that are that are bringing in this, uh, just implementing it now. Actually, uh, Colum- British Columbians eighteen and older will be able to carry up to a cumulative total of two and a half grams of illicit uh, illicit opioids, crack and powder, cocaine, methamphetamine and MDMA without risk of arrest or criminal charges. Now, where the Telegraph article just manages to vaguely get things right is that under those rules, the British Columbians had to go to Ottawa, to the federal government, to Trudeau's government, and say, look, can you basically... Can you basically just stall on your stall on your federal crime, so we can do this? And they're doing it as a three year pilot, by the way. So um, uh, it, it's actually coming in, I believe, in a couple of weeks' time, where people uh, can can carry a, a cumulative amount of two and a half grams—a very small amount—of uh, these sort of Class A's, as they call them in the UK. Um, and and Ottawa needed to basically just put on hold for British Columbians only uh, their drug laws. Now, it's it, 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 it's basically. although I must go on to say the production, trafficking, sharing, and exportation of the of, of those sort of level drugs will remain illegal throughout Canada, including British Columbia. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's in effect. It starts. It's actually start will start tomorrow. This thing, Jack. Now, it, it, It's really interesting to think about this, and I don't want to take up too much time, but when the state of Colorado was the first to legalise in the United States, legalise the use of marijuana, and that came with all sorts of problems because the, the, and it came in in 2012, in the Obama era, it came in and the feds would not. uh, The feds would not stall the what's called the Prohibited Substances Act, which is a federal act, which has all sorts of penalties, not just for users, suppliers, retailers, and what have you, but for people who are in the in the in the supply chain along the way, including uh, retailers taking their money to the bank. So you know, at the end of the day, they would take. It led to some potentially awful situations where banks. In fear of being charged with 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 uh, money laundering, would not open accounts for these retailers of, of legalized marijuana, and that led to millions of dollars being being stored in safe houses, being armed, um, be, being guarded by people with um uh, with AR fifteen A Very very dangerous sort of situation. And the fact is that those laws still remain in place. Trump had no uh, interest in pursuing them, uh, and. Uh, and, and the feds never have. So, technically, while you've got all of these states now legalised marijuana, the federal law stands above it, and ev- and anyone involved in the supply chain can be done for money laundering and all sorts of horrible things with twenty year jail terms available to the feds in Canada. I was, I was talking to a bloke
1: um, from California who uh, who is in the marijuana industry in California, uh, and not just in Colorado. It's it's a complete mess everywhere it's been done at the it's, moment.
0: it's been regulated to within to within uh a, a, an inch of its life so people are still buying from from, from the black market, black market. Yeah, exactly yeah that's right, right. and that uh, that happens in colorado too but interestingly <laughs> just very briefly we've got good colorado legalized in 2012 so we've got actually good data sets on on any sort of social harm and there's not really a lot. there's the the the, the worst element of, of it is that the child poisonings have accelerated because they found dad's stash of edibles and got half a dozen of them down they Had to be wished to hospital. That's probably the worst thing, but in terms of crime, in terms of motor vehicle accidents, really no spikes at all. Um, so anyway, I just, I just wanted to point out just, you know, that I know Justin Trudeau is a bit of a, a bit of a laughing stop for us both really, but this story from the, from the from the UK Telegraph, is basically just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and it's another, it's another, another little bit of uh, of the uh,
1: what's wrong with the public health officials around the world is they just love telling other people
0: what to do. In, in, indeed, yeah, yeah, indeed. Now, look, basically, if you know if, what, how it affects it, it been run for three years. The Portuguese did this twenty years ago. And so we've got data sets from them. And there are no particular harms. Well, I'm, talk, ma-
1: I'm talking about the, uh, the alcohol oh, the, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. They, they just love telling people what to do.
0: You just, yeah, you just got to ignore that. But the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction has got to be some dullards among them. That's yeah. not a, it's actually not even a government agency. It's a quanger. Anyway... Lovely story, um, but it's actually really worth keeping an eye on what's going on, what's going to happen in British Columbia over the next three years, social consequences and uh, and all that sort of stuff. then well, we've got to move on to sport, Jack. Gee whiz, I've been blabbing on here. Uh, I, can, I, I can tell you,
1: it's um, uh, the Eagles are through to the Super Bowl, and it's twenty twenty with the Chiefs and the Bengals. Wow! So, the, uh, the- and that's. Um, uh, I'm not sure how long to go. It's in the fourth quarter, so
0: yeah, it must be must be running running late now. So the Philadelphia Eagles are definitely on their way to the Super Bowl. They beat the 49ers 31-7 there. And the Super Bowl will be at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, on February twelfth. That's about ten thirty Australian, ten thirty in the morning, Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, and uh, they will play either the Kansas City Chiefs or the Cincinnati Bengals, who remain locked up at the moment. And that's a Super Bowl in two weeks. To have a week off, Jack, and it's highly controversial because they spend most of that time uh, having a lovely time of it. The Super Bowl players. Um, and of course, uh, Novak Djokovic has won the Australian Open to the surprise of not too many, and uh, his old man rather uh, uh, bloodied the uh, bloodied the, uh, the, the the great victory by hanging out with Russian and Serbian idiots.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't work out why um, there was there was a push from the the media to ban him from being at the tennis because he has opinions that people don't agree with. I just think that's sort of wrong.
0: Well, they did ban flags, but then they didn't
1: ban flags. I I even think that's wrong too. I mean, um, I can see why you wouldn't have the Russians or the Belarusians in a Davis Cup if the Davis Cup will ever exist again. But these uh, these players are not representing Russia or Belarusia. They are just... Players who happen to be from
0: Belarus or Russia. Yeah, look, I, I honestly can tell you that behind all that flag waving and faces of Putin and what have you, there was, a, you know, a concerted effort. In fact, our own fr- and my old friend Simeon Boykov was offering cash to people who turn up at the tennis with a Russian yep. flag. So there was it was a concerted effort to uh, to suggest to the world, and of course, the Russian. Uh, the Russians themselves are great propagandists. They would have looked at uh, and and shown footage of uh, of these flags and saying, "Look, here we go. Uh, the Australian people do support Russia in uh, in its in its uh, in its war against the Ukraine."
1: Well, I can remember right back when I was a kid when the uh, Vietnam War was still going on, and there were people um, at at, um, at demonstrations waving uh, Viet Cong flags around, and you know, that's an opinion that's a lot of people didn't agree with, but we we weren't arresting people for that or preventing them from
0: going places. I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone was arrested. I, don't, I think some people were escorted, but a good many of them were through. Most of them were Serbians, as I understand it, um, Serbian Australians. Uh, Jack, Russell Crowe and Brittany Theriot were at the tennis. Is that important? Yeah, I saw them on Why the telly. Why is that important? I saw that well, I just saw
1: them on the telly and I thought... That must be his daughter because she looks a hell of a lot like (laughs) um, uh, his wife. uh,
0: no, look, uh, I,
1: I, I, I think I, I think he might have taken a, um, a a leaf out of the Rod Stewart book. You know, you you, you just get a newer model, but the same a, a newer version of the same model.
0: You know? Well, I can tell you, Jack, uh, as a bit of a celebrity watcher myself, uh, not at all, and that means I had to uh, look this up. But I, I believe they've been going out for two years. Oh, okay. Um, she's a former actress, and uh, now she works in real estate and. Uh, and Crowley's worth a few, Bob, and uh, he's not an unattractive man And, um, and, uh, and a got, decent fella He seems to be like a bit of a bit of a fun fella, so good luck to him In the BBL, uh, the Sixers will host the Heat at the SCG on Thursday uh, And whoever wins that one will play the Scorchers It's looking very much like a Sixers-Scorchers event again Which <laughs> almost always is And they'll play that game uh, in Perth at the Optus Stadium on Saturday night and all those test players, Stephen Smith and uh, Brisbane Heat's uh, Marnus Labashane and uh, Matt Renshaw and, uh, and, and Usman Kawaja, they'll all be gone. Uh, I think they're leaving uh, in the next day or so. There's the uh, Alan Border medal on tonight, Jack. Um, Is that still a thing? Yeah, no, they're still they're just still going along with that, and and you'll you'll note I think with a smile that Ian Redpath has been admitted into the Hall of Fame at the 81 years of age. Red is great a, cricketer. Great cricketer he played. I I probably saw the best of him. I think he made five tons in his last fifteen tests against some very good bowling. Some some of the, some of the best bowling are going around at the moment, particularly from the West Indies. Uh, very very good player. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so he'll be admitted into the. Uh, into the... Uh,
1: not uh, not a flashy player, not one of those blokes where you said, oh, wasn't that a, a wonderful shot. He was one of those blokes you looked around and said, he's on 40 already.
0: Yeah. Well, he, he could be very dour, um, but, uh, but there were but times when he'd take he, bowling he, on. Yeah. But and, but he, but he kept, and he was he a hell of a good hooker. Tricky. So, so yeah. if the West Indies bowled short, he'd have a go. Uh, mm. Very brave, very brave cricket. Even back in the days, you face Andy Roberts and Michael Holding. <laughs> and, without uh, without a helmet, with a with a with a, palacko, with a shirt on, you know, mm-hmm. and that was it. So uh, yes, he's admitted to. I think uh, one of the great uh, women cricketers too is also being admitted to the uh, Australian Hall of Fame uh, at the Allen Border Medal tonight. <coughs> Who would be the best Australian player in the last twelve months, Jack, in all forms? <laughs> Who would be? Yeah, it's it's decided by journalists actually. Is it? I think Lava Shana go very close. I think Smith will go very close. Dave Warner won it last year. Um, and uh, I think Smith probably will get it. Cummins wouldn't be far away either. Yeah, I think Cummins is the most likely. Yeah, right. Jack, I just want to touch on Rugby Union because it seems to be an absolute shambles. But Eddie Jones was described by Alan Jones as a psychopath, Jack. Wouldn't yes. You? Well, <laughs> And One uh, doesn't want to comment on that. And, well, Eddie <laughs> Jones didn't and said, uh, I'll, I'll let that go through to the keeper. Um, right. I
1: think that was very wise of Eddie because um, uh, he'd just say, well, it's Alan Jones, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> My favourite Alan Jones coaching story is when he was coaching Balmain, Jack, and um, this was in the days of Ciro and... Uh, and Blocker roach and people like that, and, and he used to quote he used to quote Churchill speeches to them for get them get them pumped up. And <laughs> well, that would have gone well. <laughs> zero I Blocker and see "Who's this bloody Churchill play for?" Um, all right. So uh, yes, we'll we'll see. I mean, Eddie Jones needs to, needs to succeed. Otherwise, this. This country's love of rugby union, um, which is dwindling at the moment, is uh, is gonna dwindle even further. And one of the things he did say when he touched down at Sydney Airport uh, 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 on the weekend was his desire to see rugby back in the newspapers across Australia. And that's a, that's another big thing, isn't it? Because it it's just not not getting enough not getting enough coverage.
1: No. Um, uh, the Australians will need to do pretty well at the World Cup to resurrect rugby in Australia, I think.
0: Yeah. And
1: uh, they've got some very they're coming up against some very, very good sides. No. But they've got a, they've got a fair bit of talent. They just been, haven't been able to put it together. and um, yeah, Maybe it is a coaching thing. Um, well, Eddie's, Eddie's record is that he provides a sugar hit wherever he goes as a coach but doesn't always last long.
0: Yeah, Okay, so, so
1: giving him the job this far after the World Cup might be a stroke of genius. We'll have to wait and see on that.
0: We'll have to wait and see. My uh, friends in the, who, who, who are absolute nuts for rugby can't have him. But I yes, I, go, I, so.
1: I, look, 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 he's a, um, uh, he, he is has that effect on people, um, Eddie. A lot of people. He's a
0: polarising figure, Jack. Yeah, I <laughs> thought we
1: put a ban on that <laughs> last week. I
0: thought, I thought it was necessary just that once. All right, yeah. Jack. What have, you, what have you dug up from the internet? To, to wrap this uh, up this week. Well, well, a lot of kerfuffle about these
1: uh, artificial intelligence writing um, uh, apps um, so that you can have someone um, uh, write your exams for you or write your written mm-hmm. take-home papers for you. And they're hard to pick up because unlike straight-out well, plagiarism, straight, straight plagiarism, they'll give you a different answer every time you ask the same yeah. question. Yeah. Uh, and that makes it very tricky. So they're talking about going back to what we had to do, which was to, you know, get the big biro on a piece of paper and actually write the exam.
0: Write it out in three hours uh, and get it done uh, yesterday. I, 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 think I,
1: think that, I think that's a wholly good thing. I <laughs> think it was a good way of learning education.
0: Um, AI AI is entering the world of media with a bit of with a bit of uh, a, a bit of a uh, Buzz, Buzzfeed has replaced some of its journalists
1: with uh, I think that's um, Daily Beast, but yeah, maybe Buzzfeed, but Buzz, Daily Beast yeah, certainly. Yeah, Buzzfeed. Is.
0: So I didn't hear about Daily Beast. I heard about Buzzfeed. Uh, um, Daily Beast they do they do knock out you know products and things like that. So that's kind of the role for your bot there. Um, and CNET, uh, the tech the tech online mag, and it's one of its sister publications. In the finance uh, business, and I just can't remember the name of the title. They got kind of they got sprung using AIs uh, to write a lot of their stuff because Jack, the AI, the AI bot, got it wrong uh, in calculating um, compound interest on a ten thousand dollar investment. Uh, suggested uh, that the uh, investor would receive $10,300 back instead of just $300 at 3% interest. So oh bots dear. can get things wrong as well. Um, the
1: other thing I found on the net was this is just starting to happen over. It's been happening for a little while, but it's really come up again. Um, President Biden uh, has got a new new tack. Uh, he's talking about the economy today. My word is a Biden. I've never been more optimistic about America's future than I am today. And I just think with the troubles around in and around his family with his brother and with his son, I'm not sure my word as a Biden uh, is a winning <laughs> move, you know. <laughs> Pass me the
0: crack yeah. yeah. Well, look, by the same token, Jack, GDP growth in the United States forecast for 2023, 4.7, I think making the rest of the world look pretty bloody ordinary. Well, thank you again, Jeff. Thank you for joining us uh, all the way from Hong Kong, Jack. We've only had a little bit of construction noise throughout. I wasn't sure. It was very vague, and I hope our listeners... That uh, don't pick it up, but uh, there was a bit of banging and scraping and so forth going on. But you live in that kind of vibrant atmosphere, Jack. And they are building a fairly
1: substantial pair of buildings at the back over the back fence here. They're, they're, they're about sixty floors,
0: I think. Yeah, that's a big building. Um, all right, so uh, hopefully uh, we won't have too many. Too many, too many problems in recording this show. And uh, look, listeners, thanks for joining us too. Thanks for joining Hong Kong Jack and myself today. Uh, and uh, we'll have this program out to you on the second of February. Um, and uh, and we'll be back again next week. In the meantime, if you do have letters like Lawrence did for us, drop us a line. You can hit me up on uh, uh, Twitter DM uh, on and at. Jack the Insider, and Jack, what's yours? What's
1: your? Uh, you find me on Substack, uh, Hong Kong Jack, and if you have a look, you'll find some wonderful links to videos about Australia Day from '88. Well, oh, I did look. see. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, yeah. All right, there you go. So that's something to look forward to. And thanks very thanks again, listeners, for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye now.